Well, good morning. Welcome back. It's good to see you all. Hope you slept well. Um, it's my privilege this morning to introduce to you Charles Price, um, who is originally from England and was connected to Capenry Hall in England for a number of years, was the principal there. The Lord um, led him to Toronto to pastor People's Church there in Toronto, and I think that's been for over 20 years now, something like that. But he has stepped down from pastoring that. That was my next thing. He's retired from that. Now he travels the world as an itinerant preacher, stays quite busy with that. And I was just so appreciative when um, I asked him at the last staff conference, international staff conference in England, if he'd be willing to come back and, and speak here at Thanksgiving conference again. It's been a few years since he was here. And I was, my heart was just warmed when he just, without any hesitation, said, absolutely, love to come back. Man, thanks the Lord. And then I thought, must be because there's no Thanksgiving in England. And as an Englishman, he wants to give thanks. And there's no opportunity to do that in England. And I thought, well, Canada does have Thanksgiving, but nobody knows why. <laughs> so he's now here for a real Thanksgiving week again. And it's great to have Charles here. I really appreciate Charles so much in all seriousness. Uh, it's just been wonderful to sit under his ministry at different times through the years and to always just have a very clear presentation of Christ as our life and, um, and the joyful presentation of that as well because he is not only our life, but he is our joy. And so thank you, Charles, for being with us. Appreciate it. Well, good morning and thank you. Am I on? I should be. I pressed the button. Yeah. Thank you, Charlie. It was, it was the turkey dinner that was the reason why I was so enthusiastic <laughs> to be here for tomorrow. But thank you. It's great to be here. I, I looked up my records, and I know this is probably hard to believe, but my first time I spoke at a Thanksgiving conference here was in 1983, 40 years ago, which you said, this is the 48th. That must have been the 8th. And uh, I was very young, of course. <laughs> uh, I don't know how we squeezed everybody into that little chapel, but we did that. I came several times. I was back again in uh, 86, then 89, 93, 2007, 2008, 15, my record says. So this is my seventh time at the Thanksgiving conference. I always enjoy it, and thank you the invitation to be here again. I, I was here actually at his hill the very first time in 1977. I came to speak at a teen week. I was almost one myself then. <laughs> and uh, Dwight Wadsworth, I don't know how long he was here, a couple of years, I think he was the first director uh, at his hill and I came and uh, I've always enjoyed the various visits since then. And uh, I look forward to this, not least because Peter's here, and I always enjoy sitting under Peter's ministry, learn from him, encouraged by it. So that's great, and get to know so many of you as well. Uh, a number of you have already asked me about my family. Let me very briefly, so you don't have to all ask me again. I have one wife. Uh, her name is Hillary. She's not here with me because her 93-year-old mother 
has come to live with us in Canada. We get six months visitor's visa. We have to keep extending it in the hope they'll say, yes, she can stay because her husband died back in England and uh, she has nowhere else to go. And uh, Hillary's sister lives about two hours from us, so she alternates between us. But when she's with us, it means that um, my wife is, uh, is grounded pretty well, and so, uh, except that she plays pickleball three days a week. Uh, but otherwise, as far as coming away, we can't leave her behind there. I have uh, three children. My eldest daughter is um, married with three little girls. They live in South Africa, where they are missionaries there. My second daughter is uh, also married, and uh, they're also missionaries in Toronto, a group called Move In. These are young people moving into some of the rough, tough areas of the city for the purpose of being a presence there. They do their normal jobs, most of them, and uh, they only make the commitment that every Tuesday night they pray for that community, and everything else comes out of that. Uh, they also have a rule not having televisions. <laughs> But there's now over 200 young people who've done this, and it's spread to other cities. And my son-in-law is one of the three full-time leaders. It's not an organization, it's a movement. And um, they've just had a conference in Albania uh, with about 200 European young people, mainly. There are already teams in Germany, in, uh, I think in Holland, Denmark, in Britain, UN's in Albania. Uh, that are moving into these rough areas and being a presence there and the idea being to win people to Christ, disciple them. And they have a, a group where my daughter and son-in-law is. They're in a big tower block. It's not a natural habitat for me, for sure, uh, that kind of environment, but they've gone there as missionaries and, um, and they've seen people baptized. They have a, what they call a gathering on a Sunday afternoon. And... Uh, it's, it's, it's a fruitful work. And they also started in the Far East, in, in uh, Manila, Indonesia, uh, in Central America, Guatemala, in Bogota, in Colombia, and a few other places as well. So it's kind of gaining a bit of momentum. And then I have a son, and uh, he lives in Vancouver. He's a pilot, flies for a group called Cargo Jet, so he's flying cargo. It sounds to be. He's a truck driver, really, but in the air. <laughs> and uh, so he flips around, mainly around the North American continent, including Central America and Mexico. He just last week was down in Brazil. He does an occasional trip to Tokyo and places like that, but normally uh, around North America, flying uh, FedEx stuff and Amazon stuff. So not the most exciting thing to be doing. He just spent, he just come back last year from six years in Central Africa, actually flying with the UN and the World Food Program. And that was, a, that was a, a, a great experience for him. Um, I, I'm always careful in America to about my sons-in-law. I have two sons-in-law and uh, uh, they're not liked by Americans. One is from Iran and one is from Russia. <laughs> so I picked the two worst places in the world. <laughs> to recruit sons-in-law. <laughs> but they're both uh, wonderful Christians and both in full-time ministry. And uh, my, my son-in-law from uh, Iran, I had the joy of leading him to Christ. 
I want to tell you a story. It's quite a fascinating story. And uh, I was meeting with him on a Monday night, discipling him and so on. I took him home one day. That was a mistake. <laughs> and uh, so he met my daughter. Good. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 4 in just a moment. In the four sessions I have this week, I have, I have one message but in four parts. <laughs> so if you're just here this morning, you'll learn some things, but you won't get the real punchline uh, until the end of this series. And I'm going to read, uh, first of all, the first two verses, and then verse 14. Uh, Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. This is at the beginning of Jesus coming out into the public domain. He's just been baptized in the previous chapter. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And in the following verses, we have the three areas of temptation that the devil brought against Jesus. And then in verse 14, at the end of this time, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. It's one thing to be full of the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit. Both phrases are used there in verse 1. It's another thing to know the power of the Spirit in verse 14. And what caused Jesus being filled with the Spirit to be characterized by the power of the Spirit it was not that he'd been to a great Bible conference or had had some wonderful spine-tingling experience of the Spirit. But he'd gone into the desert for 40 days with no food in his stomach, with the devil on his back. And the end of that period of tempting and testing, he returned in power. You see, you might know the indwelling and fullness of the Spirit as a result of a momentary encounter with God. It says in the day of Pentecost, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, five minutes ago they weren't, now they are. That can be instantaneous. But the power of the Spirit is a result of a process where that indwelling Spirit of God becomes 
in such a position in the life of that individual in whom he indwells that from them flows that which can only be described as power. I don't mean sensationalism by that. But things happen from their lives. And the reason why power is the result of a process is because power corrupts. Even spiritual power corrupts. And for the Spirit of God to get hold of a woman or a man and to equip them to be those through whom he's going to work in power, there is a breaking process. And often, again and again, a painful process that takes place in the person's life. Everybody's story is different. But here in the experience of Jesus Christ, although he was never less than perfect in his moral character, being the perfect man, as we know, it was not his baptism that marked the beginning of his ministry. We often hear that, don't we? After he was baptized, he began his ministry. No, his baptism marked his being brought out of obscurity. People didn't know him before then. John was the one who announced him with these words, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is who he is, and this is what he will do. That was news to everybody. But then he immediately went underground again, out of sight. Because it was this 40 days of testing, from a devil's perspective, we'll come to this moment, temptation, from God's perspective, testing is the same word, different perspective. We'll explain that in a few minutes. And after that period of testing, he came out and was characterized by power. And I want to talk about this over these four sessions that I have. Because, you know, it's one thing to know I'm indwelt by the Spirit of God. It's one thing to learn sort of cliches. Christ in you. Without knowing anything of what its real purpose is, that it then becomes Christ through you. The Holy Spirit through us. In bringing enrichment and blessing. Peter referred to that last night in terms of fruit and we're going to talk and understand more about that from John 15 that you see if you're in Christ and he's in you there's going to be a consequence and that consequence is fruit and that fruit is going to not just pop out there's a pruning there's all kinds of things that are going to go on to make that fruit rich and effective and sometimes things that appear to us as our enemies that we would do anything to get rid of because they're painful, they're difficult, they might even be evil, might in reality be our friends. They're going to be part of the process of molding us and making us. 
we're going to talk about Satan and his agenda and so on as part of this in just a moment. But you remember that event in, in, in the segment of chapter 12 when Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh. I'm sure you've, you, you know that, uh, that, that event. And uh, it, it tells us, Paul says, that to keep me from becoming conceited, because he'd had such great revelations and so on, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. I mean, he says, he doesn't tell us what is a thorn in the flesh, he says. What is it? He, he doesn't say, probably because he knew Bible scholars need something to do later. And so people speculate, you know, was oh, it physical? It's in his flesh. Maybe it's his eyesight, because we know from Galatians, Paul had bad eyesight. He, he said, I was so ill when I was with you, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me if you could have done. So it was probably his eyes was his problem. At the end of it, he, he says, see with what large letters I write, as I write this with my own hand. At the end of the letter, he did a little postscript. And he wrote with such big letters because he seemed to be just about blind, you know, and his pen is almost sticking out of his eye and writes his big letters. So it could have been his, his eyesight, somebody's no, no, it was something else and somebody else. In fact, somebody said that if you put together all the speculation about Paul's physical ailments, you'd end up with an encyclopedia, a medical encyclopedia. <laughs> There's so many possibilities. But, uh, I mean, when he says, thought of my flesh, was it, was it something, was, was it a sin? Paul talks about the flesh as the old nature, doesn't he? I've got a thorn in my flesh. If we were to say, anybody here got a thorn in their Anybody got a problem, that's a temptation that you're constantly struggling with? Put your hand up. My hand would go up. I think Paul's might. I think maybe he's saying the thorn in my flesh is I Because it's from Satan, you see. It's not a neutral thing. It's not like breaking my arm. That's a neutral thing. It's, it's actually something bad. I'm struggling with it. And Paul talks elsewhere about some of his own struggles. When in 2 Corinthians, he talks about all, all the beatings and floggings and shipwrecks and stuff he'd been through. Uh, and, and he says, uh, uh, and you think there's an apostle, I don't struggle with the things everybody else struggles with. He says, you don't think I inwardly burn? And uh, earlier, he described, he used the word burn as a metaphor of sexual desire. It's better to marry than to burn, he said in First Corinthians. Now he says, you don't think I wouldn't be burned? You don't think I don't struggle with my sexuality? A single man traveling the Mediterranean world? You don't think that's a bug on my back the whole time? All these things, he says, I'm battling with. So whatever this thorn in the flesh is, although he doesn't tell us what it is, because one size fits all. I think if, if Paul said, I have a thorn in my flesh, you know, I can't see very well, we'd say, oh, here's a verse for blind people in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You know, here's a verse for you. Now, it's one size fits all. We've all got our issues, whatever they might be, external or internally. He doesn't tell us what it was. He tells us where it came from. He said it was a messenger of Satan. He said, this came from hell. This is not a good thing. This has not come with the blessing of God all over it. This came from hell. It's a messenger of Satan. So he did the obvious thing. He says, three times I pleaded with God, take it away from me. Three times doesn't mean I don't think, you know, I prayed ten minutes ago, then I prayed five minutes ago, and I'm praying again. It's not working. <laughs> no, I think over three periods of time he probably interceded. I mean, this is the kind of thing that goes around prayer chains, isn't it? 
would you pray for me because I'm under attack. Satan's attacking me. I preached a message not long ago in People's Church in Toronto. I called it, Stop Praying Your Problems Away. Because <laughs> sometimes your problems are your friends. Well, Paul's trying to pray this away. Three times. And God didn't speak to him on the first two times. But then he said to me in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, what is this thing doing to you? It's a messenger of Satan. What's it doing to you? It's making me weak. Good. So I'm not answering your prayer. I have a vested interest in those things which undermine your self-confidence. There's a healthy self-confidence, of course. But undermining your self-sufficiency. And so then he changes this whole thing. And he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. Because these are not my enemies anymore. I see them now, they're my friends. For when I am weak and I am strong. So the very thing says, God, take it away, take it away, take it away. It's wrong, it's from hell. It's a messenger of Satan. Please remove it. Now he says, I rejoice in this very thing I ask God to take away. Now I'm saying all this because the thrust of what I'm going to talk about in these days from Luke chapter 4 is... That if you and I are serious with God and we really want to be effective, not just, you know, I, I want a relationship with Christ that makes life nice and comfortable and easy for me, but I really want to be effective, I want to be fruitful, then as in the case of Jesus, the Father speaks from heaven, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased, led by the Spirit and full of the Spirit, he was taken into the, Jordan, into the wilderness. It says in Matthew's version, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's the object of the exercise. I'm going to put him under the devil's temptation and power. It is a theme in the New Testament that some of our biggest enemies, as we perceive them, naturally do become our best friends because of what they do for us. Hence James writes in James 1 and verse 2 consider pure joy my brothers whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Consider pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Not run to the prayer meeting when you have trials of many kinds. To get people to pray them away. Consider it joy. And he says in that same chapter a bit later, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, 
when he is tried, he'll receive the crown of life. And he puts together temptations and trials there. And I suggest you trials are external issues. They come against us. They're things which threaten us and make life difficult for us. Those are trials that are external. Temptations are internal struggles and battles. And these external trials, these internal temptations, merge together here to be something that is used by God to make us who he wants us to become. Now let me give you the big picture in this session this morning, these next few minutes. The Christian Church was history has identified three areas of battlefield that we work with, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You've probably heard those three put together before. You can find all three in the book of James, but people about the world, the flesh, and the devil. By the world, of course, uh, we, we mean the, the spirit of the world. As Paul wrote in Romans 12, verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are out of step with the world that is around us. And the winds of our culture are constantly blowing and changing, sometimes with gale force ferocity. We get caught up in the slipstream, we get pulled along, we get sucked in. And it's the easiest thing in the world to do that. And the church historically, you know, gets sucked in. You know, there's lots of dead churches around the world. You go to Europe. And the big monuments, these ma massive churches, and you know, there's no life in them. But you ever thought about it? Nobody ever started a dead church. <laughs> Nobody ever said, Let, let's start a dead church in comfort. Will anybody do that? Who's going to come? No, e every church starts as a live church. These big monuments in Europe are monuments to the Reformation, great movements 500 years ago. I'm commenting on the Protestant churches here. And there's like a centrifugal force that is pulling us away from the centrality of Christ all the time, pulling us away. And these winds are all to do with the currents of our environment, our climate, our cultures, trying to pull us away. It's not a new thing. And keeping back, I mean, I have lived long enough now to see good, live, vital, evangelical and evangelistic movements lose their cutting edge and they're no longer taken up with seeing people reconciled to God. They're taken up with other good things, but not life-changing things. I'm not going to talk any more about the world and all its various currents. That's around us. And then there's the flesh. That's not talking about the body, of course, uh, as I'm sure you know. It, it's a word Paul uses of the old nature, the sinful nature is the phrase that Augustine originated, I think. That natural pull inside of us towards sin, we inherited it. And most temptation, of course, doesn't come from outside of us, it comes from inside of us, doesn't it? 
James chapter 1 verse 14 says each one is tempted when by his own desire he is dragged away and enticed his own desire uh, James 4 verse 1 a little bit later in the same book says what causes fights and quarrels among you don't they come from your evil desires of battle within you within you the world out there is one thing and when you try to protect your kids by from the world out there which is right to do don't forget their biggest issue is here inside us and temptation by definition is attractive of course otherwise it isn't temptation is it? I mean tempting by definition is attractive you know I'm never tempted to walk in front of a moving truck it's not attractive I am tempted sometimes to push somebody else in front of a moving truck <laughs> depending who it is because by definition temptation is attractive so every sin I commit I commit because I want to don't kid yourself because something in me says if I could get away with this if I can convince myself this isn't really as bad as it's supposed to be I'll do it because it comes from within and uh, if a devil who is active and if a devil were to die tonight you and I would sin tomorrow because we have this old nature I mean it's a real force Paul says in Romans 7 verse 20 if I do what I do not want to do it's no longer I who do it it's sin living in me that does it sound like a cop out that isn't it if I do what I do not want to do it's no longer I who do it really it is sin living in me that does it what do you mean it sounds like an excuse doesn't it I mean if I came to you at the end of this service we got in conversation suddenly I pulled back my arm clenched my fist thumped you in the nose and said oh sorry I didn't do that it was sin living in me that did that would, would you accept that oh yes yeah, if I did it again you say oh sorry that wasn't me that was sin living in me that that? You, you'd probably say listen chum there's a bit of sin in me as well power and you <laughs> slap me back by the way Romans 7 20 Compared with Galatians 2.20, Romans 7.20 says it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Galatians 2.20 says it's no longer I who do it, who live, it's Christ living in me that lives. There's two principles, you see, two forces. The indwelling life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll have more to say about what that means. Or the indwelling fallen nature. He says, is this a Romans 7.20 issue or is this a Galatians 2.20 issue? Am I being sucked in by the pull of sin or am I being drawn by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? But um, it's sin living in us. So be careful of blaming the devil for your sin, by the way. I had a colleague in England Cape Hall some years ago his name was Billy Strachan did Billy Strachan ever come to his hill yeah he did did he ever come to Thanksgiving might have done Billy was a wonderful Scotsman dramatically converted actually and um, he died far too early had a sudden heart issue that he died of within a couple of hours and um, uh, 
Billy didn't tell me this story, though I asked him about it later, but somebody in a church in the south of England told me this story. Billy had gone there to preach. And at the end of one of his meetings, he'd been there for several days, a lady came to him and said, would you pray for me? He said, certainly. What is your need? She said, I'm troubled by demons. He said, you're troubled by demons. Tell me more. She said, well, I have a, a demon of pride and I have a demon of greed and I have a demon of jealousy and I have a demon of lust and a demon of this and a demon of that. She gave a whole list of things that she said were demonic forces in her life. And Billy said to her, you mean to tell me you have a demon of greed and a demon of pride and a demon of lust and a demon of jealousy and a demon of this and a demon of that? She said, uh, yes. He said, that is remarkable. She said, why? He said, because I can do all those things all by myself. I don't have a single demon. And I struggle with them all. He said, Madam, your need is not exorcism. Your need is repentance. And the leader of that church, one of the leaders who told me that, said she'd gone to every visiting speaker with the same story. And most of them played her game. He said, Billy was the only one who talked sense to her. You're the problem, not the devil. That doesn't mean there aren't demons. But it's interesting, if you study what the New Testament has to say about demons, you know, they have things about 27 references to demonic powers uh, in the Gospels and the Book of Acts, and they can cause a person to be blind, a person to be deaf, they can cause a person to have real supernatural strength and snap chains, they can, they, they can cause someone to act as though they're mad, they can predict the future, they can drive pigs into the sea. All kinds of things demons do, but nobody in the New Testament ever told a lie because of a demon or committed adultery because of a demon. They don't have moral powers. They have physical powers, it seems, not moral powers. Do you know why a man commits adultery? I'll tell you. Because he wants to. That's all. It's not made to. And so there is this old nature, this old corrupt nature. And then the third is the devil, of course. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're going to be looking at his activity in this passage more later. But, uh, but the devil is presented to us in Scripture as a living being, independent living being with a personality, with a mind, with a will. He's never actually introduced in Scripture. He suddenly appears in the Garden of Eden, almost matter-of-factly. Uh, no explanation of him. And so, to understand Satan, we have to sort of piece together what we find in Scripture about him. And, of course, the, the biggest question about Satan is, why did a good God create an evil devil? And the answer is, he didn't. What he did do was create a beautiful angel who sat at the pinnacle 
of the angelic hierarchy. There was clearly there are different angels. There are angels and there's archangels. There's cherubims. There's seraphims. There's there's uh, Michael's the big archangel and so on. There, there's a hierarchy of angels as well. And right at the pinnacle was one called the Morning Star, which in English in the King James Bible is called Lucifer. And he knew he was number one. Except for God. And on account of his beauty, it says, he wanted to be like God. Instigated a rebellion in heaven and was cast to earth. The two Old, passages, two Old Testament passages that, that seem to speak of this, just, just briefly, so we've, we've got the background and got the picture. Um, the, the first is in uh, Ezekiel 28, when in this prophetic passage, Ezekiel is talking about the king of Tyre. But then he goes on to speak in a way that's clearly about someone other than the king of Tyre. This is a common approach to Old Testament scriptures. There are things that begin talking about some real person locally and then suddenly, as in some of the Messianic prophets, suddenly he's talking about Christ and we understand that on the back of a real human person story. And it's a pattern of how prophecy comes in the Old Testament. And uh, let me just read you in Ezekiel uh, 28 and, and verse 12. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Listen to this. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, in the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountains were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked amongst the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled your guardian angel among the fiery stones, etc. Fascinating description. You know, once I was talking to a, a group of 200 teens in England. And I said to them, I'm going to read you some verses here. I want you to tell me who this is about. So I read these verses. You were the model of perfection full of wisdom you were perfect in beauty you were on the holy mount of god you were blameless in all your ways i say who do you think i was talking about that 200 teens high school team and suddenly put up a hand and said solomon i said okay thank you anybody else somebody said david i said okay anybody else somebody said jesus I said, anybody else? And one of the leaders at the back said, Satan? I said, uh, okay. One of those four is right. This is talking about Solomon, David, Jesus, or Satan. Put your hand up if you think it's Solomon. About 20 hands went up. 
Sounds a bit like Psalm, doesn't it? When it talks about you are full of wisdom, etc. David, about three hands went up. Who thinks it's Jesus? About 160 hands went up. This sounds like Jesus. The model of perfection. Full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were blameless in all your ways. Verse 17 says, Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. And through your widespread trade, you became filled with violence. And you sinned, so I threw you to the earth. Haven't time to look at the second passage, which is in Isaiah 14. Similar story. He's called the morning star. Oh, Lucifer, the King James says, son of the morning. And there he says, I will raise up my throne above the stars of God. But if you want to note it, Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. Take a look at that sometime. And it's clearly a description of Satan. There's the I will, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned in the mount of the assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I'll make myself at the most high. There's about six, there is it, five or six. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will be like God. Do you know the first temptation he gave was in the Garden of Eden, of course, when he came to Eve, and he, and he said the very same thing to her. He said, uh, uh, if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. Of course, the lie that Satan told was, was not that you could be like God, because he just made them in his image, which means you look at a human being, you see what God is like. So the lie wasn't that you will be like God. That kind of, yeah, I understand that. We were made in his image. But the lie was you could be like God without God. That was the lie. That's why you'll find in his temptations of Jesus, as we will see in these next sessions, that the temptations to Jesus were to act in independence of his Father. Not to do the wrong things. I mean, turning stones to bread. Having bread isn't sin. And he wasn't saying, you know, run down to Jerusalem and find some, some woman down there you can go and spend the night with. That isn't what he was saying. No, it, it was not go and do bad things. And we'll talk about that. Temptation isn't always about doing bad things. It's, it's about being independent of God. Do it in independence of God. And uh, the devil fell fell, I said this about five or six times, I will, I will, they're all, I will lift myself, I'll go up, up, up. But the verdict is, you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, sun, the dawn, you've been cast down. This is Isaiah 14, verse 15, you are brought down, down to the depths. You know, he's, I'll go up, 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 that's his goal. The consequence was he went down, down, down and was cast to earth. So God did not create the devil. He created the most beautiful of all his angels. So beautiful that 160 teenagers mistook him for Jesus. And he was cast to the earth in opposition to everything that is of God.
You know, in Revelation 12, it talks about this retrospectively, and it describes it this way. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him, and it says in verse 4 of Revelation 12, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, if a third of the stars means a third of the angels, that the devil in his own fall took a third of the angelic beings with him. We know them now as demons. Almost certainly the origin of demons is that they were fallen angels. And uh, that's a lot of demons. We don't know how many angels there were, of course. Uh, John tried to count them once in the book of Gen uh, Revelation. He said there were 10,000 times 10,000, that's 100 million, plus many more that could not be numbered. I think he did well numbering 100 million. <laughs> he said that I got the 100 million, 999,000. 99 million, 999, I can't count anymore. There's many more could not be numbered, so there's millions of angels. And a third of them were swept the earth, which is why there is demonic activity. And, uh, you know, Satan, of course, is not omnipresent like God. Satan moves to and fro around the earth. That was in the book of... Job, when the Lord called Satan up and said, well, how are you getting on and going to and fro around the earth and back and forth on it. I once introduced Major Ian Thomas at a meeting and I said, I think the best verse in the Bible I know that describes Major Thomas is this verse that says about Sunday roaming th throughout the earth and going back and forth and up and down on it. I said, that's what Major Thomas does. So he got and said, you talking about Satan? <laughs> so just that verse, that's all. You just go around and up and down on the earth. <laughs> but that's what, Satan's not in all places, you know. Satan may not be in Texas right now. He's not in everywhere. He's probably in Gaza or somewhere. But if he's in, let's say, Tibet today, he's not in Texas today. You say, oh, does that mean we're, we don't have the devil bugging us? Well, he has his demons. And often the scripture speaks of, of Satan doing things that, that, that are demonic activities. You know, we, we might say Osama bin Laden attacked America on 9-11. No, he didn't. He was sitting in a cave in Afghanistan. But his people did. So we say, or we say Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, September 1939. Well, Hitler was sitting in the Reich in Berlin. Uh, his people did. Uh, so we say, well, Satan does this. Well, his people are. Yes, he's the architect. He's the, he's the instigator. He's the manager of the whole affair. That is true, but it's, uh, it, it, it's Satan, Satan's works. But he's, he's limited. In fact, isn't it in Pergamum, in, in, the, in the book of Revelation, it talks about... Um, Yes, in Pergamum, Asia Minor, Revelation 2, 
I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. That's where the devil's throne is there. Uh, because he... Another interesting thing about the devil, and this comes into what we're going to say in the next sessions as well. Did you know he goes to heaven once in a while? Book, look at the book of Job, chapter 1. God called all his angels before him. And amongst them, it says, was Satan. And God said, how are you getting on? I'm going to and fro, up and down, around the earth, causing as much trouble as I can. What about my servant Job down in Ur there? Down in, was it, not Ur, in um, Nod, wasn't it, whatever it was. Uh, he, he said, what about my servant Job? How are you getting on with him? Ah, oh, yeah, but you made things good for Job. He's rich, he's wealthy, he's got a nice family. Yeah, he'll serve you because everything's good for him. Well, if that's the reason he serves me, it isn't worth much, is it? No, of course it isn't. Well, I'll tell you what to do. Satan said you build a hedge around him. Let's take the hedge down. You can attack him, you can do what you like. Don't touch his body, don't take his life. And Satan runs off and he attacks him, you know the story. And then in chapter two, God calls the angels back and amongst them is Satan. Interesting, isn't it? He talks to God. Jesus said to Simon Peter, you remember when Simon Peter denied Jesus three times? And we criticized Simon Peter for that, but uh, don't forget that very day, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. Peter, Simon, uh, Simon, Peter, Satan has asked for special permission because he needs permission. He did for Job to attack you. And by implication, permission has been given because I'm praying for you. Next thing we know, Simon's denying Jesus, cursing and swearing, denying any knowledge, and then he's at the back weeping over his failure. And I guess Satan attacked him in that. You know, it tells us that uh, Satan accuses the brethren, that's the Christians. God, Satan accuses us before God day and night. So he, he goes up to heaven and says, God, Charles Price, you know that guy who was preaching in that tent down in Gunfusson, Texas? You know what goes on in his head sometimes? You know what he's done? He talks to God about us. But we have an advocate, a lawyer, who speaks to the Father in our defense. And Jesus is our defense lawyer. People think of Jesus as the, as the, as the um, uh, what do you call the attacking lawyer? The prosecuting, what do you call him here? The prosecution, we think Jesus, you know, Jesus doesn't like me because I've failed him, I've done it. No, no, he's your defender in this uh, arrangement. Now let me finish with this because well, it's time to finish. Uh, Satan and God come together in Luke chapter 4 with a joint agenda led, Jesus led by, Jesus full of the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The devil's sitting, waiting, saliving at the mouth. Thank you. I need him. I'm going to get my hands on him. God has an agenda here, and Satan has an agenda. And they come together for 40 days. Satan's agenda, agenda is to tempt him. God's agenda is to test him. That's a play on the same word in Greek, which can translate either way. Satan's going to 
Satan's agenda is temptation. God's agenda is testing. Satan's desire is to, is to weaken Jesus. God's desire is to strengthen Jesus by the very same process. Satan is destructive. God is constructive in his intent. Satan's intent was to disqualify Jesus from his ministry. God's intent was to qualify Jesus for his ministry. And the very same thing that might have disqualified him was the very thing that would qualify him. The very same thing that would weaken him is the thing which will strengthen him. And in your life and mine, the very thing Satan would destroy us with is often the very thing God will build us with. That's why, you know, temptation isn't always the enemy we think it is. A temptation-free life is not only not possible, it's probably not even healthy. Because it's in the battle that we grow. It's in the battle we discover the strength we have in God. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, you can live a very sheltered life by giving in to temptation all the time. And you never grow spiritual muscle. So if you want to grow, and you've got spiritual muscle, we need temptation. And we never find how strong temptation and evil desires are until we try to fight it. Then we discover its strength. You know, I used to think when it says Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Yeah, well, that's, that's all very well to say that, but he was, he was God, you know, he didn't have an old nature and so on. But I, I thought about this only, I, I came to think this just a couple of years ago. My problem with temptation is that I give in so often. So I don't really know how powerful it can be if you stay resistant. Whereas Jesus never gave in. He knew the power of temptation better than probably any of us. And hence, as our high priest, he's able to understand us, to identify with us, and to minister to us in that. So that's going to be our theme for the week. How bad things, satanic things, Maybe the very means of equipping us to be men and women with power. The thing you see as an enemy might actually be a friend and what it does for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning your word doesn't tease us. It doesn't dangle things like carrots on the end of a stick. and We can be motivated by them, but we never get to enjoy them. Thank you all you've made possible to us. All you've promised us, you've made possible. But we realize it's not just to sit back in an armchair and just receive it with our feet up. You put us into situations where you... You stretch us and you mold us and you make us and you equip us. And I pray for any here this morning in particular who are in a, in a difficult time. It may be trials external to them that are threatening them and undermining them. It may be particular internal battles, perhaps temptations, perhaps habits, perhaps even addictions that are getting a hold of our lives. Lord, we see them 
for what they are. They are wrong. They would destroy us. They are evil. They are to be fought. But we thank you that in that battle, you're going to make us something we would never have been without us. And encourage us with that, we pray. That we might become vehicles for the life of the Lord Jesus to flow through us in power. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.